this is um, this is really fun for me. I, I love going places and imagining the church in that place. And so I, I like will ask questions like, well, how many people come? And it's not a because it's not a good church if it's not X number. It's a, I'm trying to picture in my mind what it is. Where do you meet? What does it look like? What do you do together? And I, I got to say, this has been really sweet. Um, from uh, just being at Wright State yesterday, um, that was really rich and sweet, and I loved, I loved every minute of that. And then seeing a bunch of you gather um, last night for the purpose of watching the Packers, that was really rich and sweet, <laughs> and I loved that. And, and I felt like this is uh, really, something really good is happening here. And so I, I just want to say, not having been here on a Sunday, I commend whatever is happening here because um, the evidence I'm seeing in lives is there's a stability and a strength that seems like it's built for a long haul. And um, that speaks to uh, quality elders and quality leaders and direction that I'd say, wow, if, if I lived here, I would be here. And I'd, I'd be thrilled to be here. Um, so we were talking uh, on the phone, Greg called me this week and he said, would you just share uh, a little bit about your life? And so my life, um, like your lives, uh, goes in all sorts of directions. So you're picking and choosing what part of your life you'd like somebody to know about or would be pertinent um, to you. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota um, and uh, my parents bought a lake home when I was five in Wisconsin, which is where I live right now. Um, and uh, the first Christians they ever met are when they bought this place on this lake. I would, I, I've wondered before. They had no business buying a cabin. Uh, life was falling apart. They were totally broke. And somebody told them, hey, there's a cabin for sale on our lake. You should come up and look at it. And they bought it. And the first day they were there, they met the first Christians they've ever met in their life. And uh, so we were talking earlier today, and I said, I've never known my parents not to be believers because that happened when I was five. But life radically changed for them at that point. Um, and I, I am so grateful for that. Where we live on that same lake on the other side now in a real small area. Um, so so uh, it's um, rich and sweet. I would hope you could come and be there someday. There's no people where we live. Um, uh, I was saying the town closest to us, it's called Hurdle. It's famous for the Hurdle Turtle races. If that tells you about you're famous for the Wright brothers. We're famous for the hurdle turtle races. That probably tells you something about where I live. Um, but uh, I met the Lord early in life. Loved the Lord. Um, this some of you may identify this very well. Some may not get it at all um, in your upbringing in your life. But um, in my family, it was not a big deal to go to college. Um, we have had uh, in just it was kind of expected in our family that you would so sometimes you get somebody and they'll say they'll say wow this is the first college graduate and the whole family has sacrificed for somebody to go to college and they put everything they can into that thing and that happens all over the place um, I was not that person I went to college because that's what you do and I had zero vision for going I started at the University of Minnesota um, and I uh, I absolutely did not try at all. So I was the laziest student I think they've ever had um, there. 
And um, I'm not saying this because it's funny. I, th I, I found it funny at the time. There's nothing funny about it. It was terrible. Um, I, just, I just never went to class. And Greg said, well, what'd you do? And I was like, well, that's the weird thing. I did nothing. I, um, so my buddies and I, Christian friends, we just hung out and did nothing. Like, but we did something while we were doing nothing. But skip class because I was failing classes, had to drop classes. I was getting Ds. Uh, if I got anything below a D, I would drop it before it got on my GPA. And, um, and so all this happens my entire freshman year. And, and um, I am not finding a problem with this because life is just going on and I'm doing what you do and I'm figuring life will work out somewhere, it always, some way it always has. And so if you ask, well, what sort of gross sins were you involved with at that time? Um, you're going to hear my answer in a second, but from my perspective at that time would have been none. I'm doing what you do. And uh, so uh, uh, it, it, absolute laziness. And it was in my um, second year. At that point, the University of Minnesota had trimesters. And it was after my first semester then of three in the, my sophomore year. My grades came home. And my dad was sitting at the kitchen table when I came home one day. And he just lifted up the paper and he said, can you tell me what you think you're going to do in life? My dad is very level. He's a great dad. I, um, I have never had a day where he didn't tell me he loved me. That's what he's like. My mom the same way. And he just said, can you tell me where you think you're going in life? And the Lord did something in that conversation. Something clicked. Because I, I was thinking, well, I just thought it would all just work out. It always does. And um, something changed of, Lord, I, I have sinned against you, and this is wrong, and I, I don't even know how to study. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do anything. And so um, something changed, and I began working as hard as I could that second trimester at the university. And the best I could, I could just get Bs. Um, so some of you, you've had A's all your life. You have no idea what I'm talking about. I had no idea how to study. I'd never applied myself at anything in life before. And um, I realized I have got to get out of here. I need somebody who will care for my soul and require me to come to class and make me turn in homework. And so I wrote a letter to Wheaton College in Illinois and I just said, I, uh, this is my, I had to send him my transcript. And um, I, I just said, I would like to apply here and uh, I have put together one decent semester and they sent a letter back saying saying if, if this an education here is really important to you um, why don't you spend a couple years at junior college and if your grades are up to it then we think you might be able to be a success here then we'll accept you and I wrote him a letter back and I said I really believe this is what the Lord has for me would you accept me conditionally and I got a letter back and it just said uh, we're expecting you fall of this next year not conditionally. And it was like the Lord absolutely gave me stunning favor that he's been giving me all my life and you all your life. You know, we don't see it in so many ways. And um, so the day I get there, one of my friends from my hometown told me, when you get there, you got to meet this guy. Uh, he's a professor. He was the curator of an old books collection. Uh, they, they call it the Marion Wade Collection. C.S. Lewis books, J.R. Tolkien books. They have the wardrobe in this place. They have the, the, a table that Tolkien wrote at. So they've collected all these things. 
So you get lazy people like me sitting at Tolkien's table. Something seems wrong about this. Um, but the Lord was doing something in me and I walked into his office and he, he, he's sitting behind the desk and he is the classic looking professor guy. Like if you're going to make a movie, that's the guy. And he just looks up and he said, yes. And I, I had nothing to say. I, I just said, Steve Schaefer told me I need to come say hi to you. And I left his office crying like 10 minutes later, like, wow, something happened I've never seen before. And that guy started discipling me along with another group of young men. And the Lord did something in me. Um, I had a form of Christianity which was real, but it was as mediocre as you could be. And uh, when I said I was involved with no gross sin, I was involved with the grossest of gross sins, which is one of the seven deadly sins, which is laziness. Um, I never tried. I wasted my time. I, I told Greg and Rick earlier today, I'm, I'm really thankful there were no video games back then because that would have been me. Or whatever else I could have been doing except employing a brain that God had given me and things he's given me. So what you're going to see in a little bit is uh, the Lord has opened doors um, for us to be working in some countries, um, places like Philippines and Bangladesh, where people have zero opportunity None. They could never dream of going places like we've gone and studying like we've studied. And yet there's a kid like me who, in essence, is saying to a people like that, this opportunity means zero to me, and I'll just dump it on the ground. And my brain that God gave me, it means zero to me. I don't care because I'm going to live at the basest level and just expect God to overcome all that and I'm going to call it good and at the same time I'll be judging other people for things that I consider are really big deal sins. And so this was a massive shaping thing in my life. Um, I don't know if that fits any of you where you're at. If you feel like you're operating at a level that you'd go, huh, I am mediocre would describe me. That was me to a T. And uh, it was shameful and I'm so glad the Lord rescued me from myself. Um, a Christian version, though, is I'm not doing this and this and this and this and this, not realizing the Lord of all the universe has given me opportunities here, and I refuse to engage them. I refuse to engage a mind he gave me. I refuse to that sort of thing. And just a thought, this isn't where I'm going, but what's amazing is the decisions you make at this age you're at trail you for years, even after the Lord's brought you out of it. And so years later, um, I was going on to get a master's degree, and I'm applying to the school, and they say on the application, uh, in, please include all transcripts from every academic institution you've attended. If any of you have applied for a master's pr program before you know that, and you're like, I'm like, oh, shoot. They're going to get my grades. And so they said there was a little spot like about this long, and they said, please fill in here if you need any explanation of your academic record. And I looked at that spot, and I'm like, oh, man, that won't fit. <laughs> because they're going to get my whole record. And so I typed out this thing, and it became like this really long paper. I'm working out my theology of laziness on this paper and my theology of myself. Like, God, what was I? 
you know. And so um, i actually thankful. I, I told him I'm thankful for that period of life, but ashamed of it at the same point. And some, you can identify, I think, a lot of you with that sort of thought like, all right, I wouldn't trade my past right now because of how the Lord's used it, but boy, I wouldn't relive it. And anybody else who's on that road, I would say, oh, get off that highway as quick as you can. So this is the stupid part of that story. Um, they, I get a letter back, and it's a letter of acceptance to the school, but it's conditional. I am so mad that they've accepted me conditionally, like because I'm so proud in I don't know what that my first thought in getting the letter is, I'll show them I'm not coming. Like, just so stupid. <laughs> and thankfully, it was a very brief thought. I didn't show them by not coming. I thought, wow, that wouldn't show anybody. It would just show you are what you've always been, which is this thing never got rooted out of your life. You've got to work hard. And so this is my testimony of a lazy kid who didn't try and squandered things God gave him and expected God to and people to make up for things that I was unwilling to engage and try on my own. And I'm thankful to the Lord that uh, he has done a deep work in a super broken part of my soul. Um, and uh, so it probably gives me a super soft spot for, for instance, guys who spend all their time playing video games and go, I get you. I understand what that's like, but get off that as quick as you can because it's going to destroy you and it's an affront to half the world who would say, I, I would kill for opportunity and you're just like lighting it on fire and burning it and it, it's weird when you look at the list of deadly sins. Some of them go, ah, that's not a major to me. And the Lord would say, it is to me. Because you're basically thumbing your nose at me. You're saying it's not a big deal. So, backing up a little bit. I got out of school and I went into advertising. That's my background. I worked at a couple ad agencies. Um, variety of clients. Uh, Advertising, when I started, was a really strange world. If any of you have done any marketing sort of stuff or that thing, it's a... It's um, it's a good example of weirdness. We we Minneapolis at that time was like the capital of uh, coolness in advertising. The client meant nothing. Everything was about like winning awards for how cool your ads were, which is such a strange thing. You're thinking somebody's paying you to sell their goods, but all you want is to create stuff that draws attention to itself. But the people who were giving awards were ad agencies would vote on each other's stuff. And so you go, this is really backwards. I, I suppose it becomes a metaphor for life in a sense, though the God who created us is expecting something out of us, but instead of looking to him to judge us, and would you look at and examine my life, we're looking at each other saying, hey, will you validate me? Am I really what I'm supposed to be and give me awards for things that you think are really impressive and the God of the universe is saying, this is about me and spreading my name. So this is that era um, and I got laid off at the second ad agency I was in and I started freelance writing. I did that for a number of years. Um, one of the things this did was it really uh, made me very tight in my writing. Um, this was in the days before computers could count characters. 
And so um, it, I would write brochures for companies and things, and they'd say, you have 200 characters, commas and spaces, and to describe this whole thing, like on a motorhome or on a lawnmower. And you'd write it, and I'd take 700 characters, and I'd have to recount it, and then cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. So last night, when everybody gathered for the Packers game, we were laughing because there was a conversation about commas. And I was saying afterwards, those the weird thing is that I love that sort of stuff. Like a conversation about dorky things like commas and where they go and stuff like that. It's part of what the Lord put in me. Um, and we all have those, don't we? Those little things that you say, you wired me like this and it's weird. But somehow it fits in your world and in your kingdom. And, and something the Lord did at this time was um, he was turning me into somebody who could write and describe things uh, in a way that people could understand it. And um, after a while, I got tired of writing about stuff that I didn't deep down care about that much, lawnmowers and motorhomes. I said, Lord, I would love to be writing stuff, your sort of stuff. And that started happening. In fact, I prayed. Um, I said, Lord, I, I would like to um, be doing your stuff, but I'm doing this. When that moment comes, will you let it know me know clearly when a shift has come in my life that uh, I can be doing this more full-time. And one of my clients called one day, it was Toro Lawnmowers. I did a lot of work for them. And the guy called me and he said, hey, Tom, I, uh, we have a lot of videos. At that time, videotape was a big deal. We have a lot of videos to write this year. You can write them all if you want them. And then he stopped and he said, but I want to know where your heart's at. And I thought, this is a non-Christian client. And I thought, what is Weird. Why is he asking where my heart's at? He goes, I know you got some other stuff and I just want to make sure you're all in. And I told him because anybody who does any sort of contracting or accounting or anything where you get clients, you never give away clients because you might never get them back because there's probably somebody better out there. So I'm like, no, I want the work. And I felt right in my heart at that point, that was the wrong answer. So I didn't tell him that. I, call, I called my wife up and I said, honey, I, I think we're done. And um, we decided to pray that night, and I called my client up the next day, and I said, um, Scott, thanks for the opportunities and all the years we've worked together, but I feel like you're right. My heart is going a different direction right now. We'd talked about it before, and, and uh, that was the Lord's signal to, I want you to be doing this full time, among other things. That led into all sorts of stuff, which I'm not going to get into, but the Lord opened um, things I'd written. The Lord opened some doors into uh, work in Asia. And uh, I had written some materials, gospel materials, and uh, um, a couple called one day. The lady called and she said, um, hi, we're missionaries in Vietnam and we, would like, we want to know if we can translate some of your material for use in Vietnam. And a church had just invited me to go to Vietnam. I was going in two weeks, which is weird because I'd never gone to Asia in my life. And I said, Vietnam, that's weird. I'm going to be there in two weeks. And the lady screamed on the phone. She goes, honey, they're going to be there in two weeks. And so the guy gets on the phone and he goes, all right, who are you meeting with? It's a communist nation. And at that point, and I said, well, we're meeting with this and we're meeting with the, this group of churches. He goes, okay, we don't want to meet your group. We just want to meet you. Because the underground church doesn't <clears throat> really mingle so much with the above ground church at that point, at least. And he, 
he says one of these weird things. It's a once in a lifetime thing for me, I think. He goes, we'll meet you in such and such hotel. I'll be in the lobby at nine o'clock reading a paper in the corner. So, so one of those things that you're like, Lord, what are you doing? And, and, um, so for a guy whose background is in advertising, marketing stuff, the Lord is opening the doors for the stuff I've written, not me. And so I meet him, and that started a relationship with this um, person, and, and then since then traveled a lot with him and with his son, working in different Asian nations right now, particularly in the Philippines, working with pastors and leaders and in Bangladesh. And, and um, I want to give you a picture of what we're doing in Bangladesh right now, um, not because Bangladesh is utterly unique in the earth, but because in the same way that when I leave here, my wife, when I called on the phone today, when we talked, she said, what's it like? We've never been to Dayton before. I've never been to this church before. We don't know what it's like that for, for a lot of us, we've never been, um, we've never been to a country like that. And we've, for a lot of us, we've never been to an Islamic country. And so this is what a lot of people in the world are facing right now. So this is not so much about me. What I'd like, uh, 2016, um, there you can do the PowerPoint. Yeah, there you go. Um, you're going to see some things here. But what, what I just want you to feel is this, this right here today is not, this is not normal. And you are not normal. And, and that when I talked earlier about squandering something, this, um, puts it, this puts it into perspective that most of the planet lives different from us. Some of you who are born in different nations, you know that, you know that very well. Um, but this is different and opportunities we have are different. And the Lord has given us some things where perspective-wise you'd say, what would I want if I lived on another part of the world? What would, what would I like if, it, if I was them? And, and so put a lot of thought into that. Working, we're working with uh, pastors in rural areas. Um, in the Philippines, in the mountain areas. And in, in Bangladesh, we're working with a group of churches. There's 385 churches with that, that we're working with. So you need to hear this part. They have 130 leaders. 385 churches, 130 leaders. So right away you said there is a leadership crisis there. Um, and they cannot meet that need the same way we meet that need. And this is not unique among, this is not like the strangest place. So you could go to Pakistan, you would find the same thing. You could go to Indonesia, not quite the same, but in these nations all around, um, parts of India, it all depends on which places you would go. You go to Afghanistan, you'd go to all these nations and you'd say, wow, life there is different. And what does the church do in the parts of the world that say, we're doing okay right here. We have our deals, we're suffering, but we're doing okay. And what I, I'd like is if you could feel the weight a little bit of believers there. What does it feel like to be a believer in a country like this? So you're going to see some things. Our church has been working in Bangladesh as, as long as I've been there. Um, so does that... 
So this is, come up here. Because this is his people. Um, Anvesh, this is your people, at least related. Bangladesh was part of India. So this part right here, can you show us where you live, where your home is? All right. So this whole area is all at least peoples who are related. The Pakistanis would say the Bangladeshis are their brothers. What they mean by that is we would like to control you again. It's this people has been oppressed their entire existence. So at least the perspective of Americans, we have a perspective that's built in just by virtue of being born in this country, at least some of us, that is we've never known what it feels like to not have opportunity and to be the bottom. And it, in a sense, you'd say, it's not, that's not a fault, it's just a reality. That's what we were born into. It's all we know, it's the air we breathe. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What happens if there are no bootstraps and you can't pull yourself up? What, what do you do then? Um, you're gonna see it later, a, a pastor of a church of 600 and they get $3 of offering a week. What happens then? What does that church do? How do they move forward? So this is Bangladesh. It is about the worst plot of land on the planet. It's like they got the lowest of land. So if sea levels rise, which to us is a minor thought, like when they say those things like one inch of sea level rises, a nation like that, it is absolutely flooded. And you'd go, okay, that would devastate whole parts of the planet. So things to us that are like, ah, an inch doesn't sound like a lot. Put yourself somewhere else and then hear a conversation like that. What would climate change do in a place like that? Um, so next, next slide. Do you want me to push these? So this is a church. Uh, we're working with a group of churches. They're called the Free Christian Churches of Bangladesh. Again, 385 churches. Imagine you live in a country that is, has a majority religion like Islam and take your pick, make it something else, make it communism, make it, it changes as years change. There will be a new version, if, if the Lord hasn't returned, when, there will be a new version of this, there always is. There's always a new beast out there that's oppressing the saints. And, and so... Um, they have built this place in the north of the country. They're calling the home of peace. It's, it's like an orphanage, but it's not an orphanage. The kids have parents. Problem in a country like this is because the families are so poor, particularly the girls, um, they, they will be trafficked. It's very likely that will happen. Somebody comes into their village and says, hey, we have a job for your daughter. She'll have to come to and then pick the city. Uh, where it might be, it might be somewhere in uh, um, Saudi Arabia, it might be in India somewhere, it might be somewhere else in Asia, in Thailand, something like that. We have a job for your daughter and she'll be working in a restaurant. She goes to the town, there's nothing, there's no restaurant there. She is uh, a slave and she can't go back because it would bring shame on her family and on her village and this is happening all over. So this church has a vision and they have started a place, they call it the home of peace, where they are taking in people, they have uh, about right now 380 kids in this place right now, boys and girls, and they're raising them up. Um, this is like an 18 acre 
plot of land. It was owned by the Hindus and they bought it uh, uh, over great suffering. But this, this sort of thought, the question is, I, I wonder about things like this. Would I have done it? Would I go for it if I were them? If there's a Muslim majority and it's approaching 95% right now in their country, would I go for it if I'm getting death threats? Am I going to push the ball forward like that? Or am I going to say, it's not worth it. Let's just duck and cover our heads. You say, come on, they wouldn't do that. We do it here in America all the time, don't we? Ah, uh, What would we? We can't preach about this. It'll offend somebody. You think that's just preaching. Nobody's chopping off our heads. So, so when you see the church taking risks, for me, this gives me super hope. Wow, this is happening all over the world. The church is being the church and doing things. You say, wow, you just took a risk. This might not make it. And the answer is, you're right. It might not make it. It might get seized. They had to buy the land, I think, five times. This, it's a stunning thought. For people with no money, they buy the land and then it's like, ah, you didn't fill out the paperwork right. You buy it again. And you buy it, and you just think, wow, what would I do after number two? Number three. So let's go to the next slide. So these are the kids. Um, the boys sit on one side. Girls would sit on the other side. These are the kids in a chapel class. You can go to the next slide. We, one of the things our church did, people in our church, they said, how can we help? And they had a need for shoes, shirts, and bed sheets. So just show you. Um, next slide. These white shoes here, um, these kids are going off to take their boards. So their exams, they can move on in schooling. These would be the first pair of shoes these kids have ever put on in their life. They've, they've worn like flip-flops all their life. And um, so... So we were there and we were handing out shoes and socks and the white shirts that you see for the boys and the girls. And um, we handed them to every student. You could say, well, you could have just had them hand them. They really wanted us to hand them to each person because they said, we want them to know that there's people outside this country who actually love them and care for them. It's not coming from us. It's coming from believers who know about them and know they matter. They have some level of worth. So next slide. They're trying to raise cows. So uh, you can show the next picture. They bought a cow and they were so excited it was pregnant and it had a girl. So they have 30 cows right now. The kids are getting, 380 kids are getting milk every week. One glass. It's unheard of in the nation. And it's those sorts of things that think, wow, you guys are going for it. You're buying cows. I don't know if I'd do that. I wouldn't, I'd think, ah, oh, it's so hot here and they'll probably die and somebody will steal it anyway. That, so that sort of thinking, lazy sort of thinking, but you got people saying, we're going to do this thing. We're going to try and see what happens. Next slide. Uh, we brought toys there. So this is a video. It won't play. You can watch it on my iPad later if you want to. Um, I did this, uh, I needed packing material and we had some Beanie Babies. Do you guys remember Beanie Babies? They were a craze for a while. They're not a craze any longer. <laughs> they were packing things to protect some things we brought. Um, so we were able to give them to the kids. And, and they, the staff was so excited, they were like, 
these are probably the first toys they've ever had in their life. So those sorts of things in my mind don't compute very well. Remember, the guy who goes to school and thinks, I'll make it. This school is nothing to me. Squandering education is nothing to me. I can't relate to a kid who's never had a pair of shoes or a toy or a something like that. Next slide. So, oh, they are playing. Can you turn the volume up? Watch. She, they're picking out a beanie baby. Ah. The kids are going crazy for each one. All right, you can stop it there. So talk, talking about nations, though, and what it feels like to be a believer in a place like this, this man in the red shirt, he's a Muslim, um, and I've known him for several years now, but he has slowly been pushing and becoming more radicalized. He's working with the church there, and he's told them, do you know I could get you shut down anytime I want? And so that one of the pressures the church faces is, how do we deal with that? What do we do? You can't fire somebody like that. How do you handle it? And, and not looking for an answer, just can you imagine if it was you, though? What would that feel like, an added weight that none of us here know that weight? We don't feel that weight at all of there's somebody in our midst who could make life miserable for us anytime he chooses, and yet he's working for us, and we need to keep this thing going somehow. All right, next, next slide. Uh, one, a family from our church gave us some money. Their kids had saved, saved their money, their tithes for the year. They said, would you just look for a need? I get there, I watch the kids playing. Do you see what that is? It's plastic bags tied up. That's their, that, they were playing soccer. Now, you notice him, he is, um, he doesn't look very unhappy, does he? He's doing just fine. They're playing soccer, they're having a ball. I just say, hey, can you come over? Can I get a picture of you? Hold up your ball. So he holds up, he smiles. When we're done, he's back to playing soccer. And so this family um, just said to him, hey, your money went to soccer balls. I, I just thought, and you think it's not because they're unhappy. They're making do with what they have. But something that to us is an insignificant thing, like you think of how many footballs maybe do you have or Frisbees or something, and you think you got a group of kids who that's what they're doing, and they're doing okay, but these are your brothers and sisters. So next slide. We um, brought something to them. We brought these lights. I don't know if any of you have seen these. They're called Lucy lights. Um, we got them for, they're about $15. They're inflatable. You can blow them up. They're solar. They last for 12 hours once they're inflated. Um, and uh, so we brought uh, 130 lights, 130 workers, 130 lights. Um, over 30% of the country has no electricity. So last year, one of the pastors we worked with 
um, when we held a pastor's conference, he didn't come this year because he was killed by a cobra walking on a dark path at night. And um, so the lights were actually lost. These are Filipinos. The airlines lost the luggage. That gal on the right spent two days on the phones recovering the lights. It was just one of those little miracles the Lord does. You say, Lord, these people, this is going to help them. So next slide. Um, so this is the guy who heads up the denomination. His name is Albert, and he has a doctorate. Um, he's a highly educated man. He's actually he's the only person I know who's ever been to the White House. So he's met, uh, it was during George, Bush's, George W. Bush's presidency. He was brought in as an ambassador from Bangladesh. Um, so talking about pressures of a country like this, this is all over Asia. Uh, it would be in Africa as well. Uh, when you raise up leaders, if you get them educated, there's a high likelihood they will leave and never come back. So he sent um, 12 of his top people to uh, England to be for theological training to come back to work with the churches. None of them came back. And so just look around. Look at what you got right here and say, take 12 of you out and just send them away and they never come back. Uh, he sent three of his workers to Philippines, to Manila, for theological training. None of them came back. And so, okay, so pressure on pastors, leaders in these areas as you raise up people, and if you send them away, they probably aren't going to come back. And uh, so for me, I have been um, critical of people who've done that. And, um, and last, last year when I went to Bangladesh, uh, it was like a weight hit me getting off the airplane and I wanted to leave from the moment I got off the plane. Like I could not wait to get out of the country. And it, it was like the Lord was doing something in my heart of, you've been really hard on people who leave the country, but you're here for one minute and you wanna leave. So don't be critical of people. You don't know what it's like to live here because even when you're here, you know you're going home. This is where they are all the time. But can you feel the weight of the pressure if you're the leader of a group, if you're a pastor and you're raising up young people and then you think, I'm going to send them where they can get trained. And if you send them, you think, ah, oh, there's a good chance they're never coming back. So I think, well, would I want to come back? Would I want my family to live there? I say, no, I'd want to leave go to Canada, I'd go to Europe, I'd go to America, but I wouldn't want to stay. And so one of the crying needs of, the, of these sorts of countries is people who are willing to stay in a really terrible situation. And at least as brothers and sisters, we have to say, I feel your pain to some measure and I'm, I'm, how, how can we help somehow? One of the answers is this, if it doesn't help them to bring them here, as far as sending people to school here, if that's not the best way, the other alternative is we're gonna need to go there. And that's hard. You know, well, I'll probably put my life at risk somehow going there, and you say, well, what, do you, what would you want if it was you, though? If, if you knew there were tools, gospel tools and help you could get, it's like a woodworking or something. If you've ever, or carpentry, if you've ever done a job, you've been screwing in screws by hand all day, your wrist is killing you, and a guy shows up with a drill. 
And you go, how long have you had that? And he goes, oh, it's been sitting in my car for weeks. Why didn't you tell me? So a weight on a guy like this is his best leaders leave. And so he's trying to figure out how do I raise up leaders when what the rest of the world does we can't do. It's, it's really hard. Uh, so he's explaining the lights to the people. Next slide. This is one of the little girls with the light. Um, next slide. The people here, these gals, are opening up the lights, um, and they are not knowing at this point what they are or what they do. They are so excited. So these pastors, their services are at night, typically on like a Sunday night. Sunday is a working day um, in an Islamic country. And so you will work at night. You would have your church service. And they said, oh, good. Now we won't have to use our cell phones like our little flip phone to read our Bible at night. Again, 30% of the country has no power. So you start saying, okay, that's a reality. We don't know that reality. Next slide. Yes, they're just, they're, it's, they were developed, um, the, country, the company, it's called Lucy Lights. The company's called Empo Empowered Lucy Lights. And they give discounts for people who will bring them overseas. But they're made for camping and things like that. So you go, camping? That's perfect for here. It's what they, so seven hours a, like the solar thing takes seven hours to fully charge and it lasts for 12 hours. You can just put it on the back of your backpack when you're walking around, things like that. So um, this is all their workers right here. What I love about this picture is you just imagine, wow, dark country, light of Christ. These people are going out all over the country. This is not just this country. It's all over. There's brothers and sisters. So when you think, wow, this country, this is so tough there, they go, no, there's believers there. They're working hard, but we need to engage somehow and say, what's our part? How do we help in some way? Next, next slide. Next, next slide. Um, this was a neat thing that happened. Our church um, uh, took an offering um, after, after we had shared about uh, the, the head guy came to our church this summer he visited and we weren't gonna take an offering. Um, we typically do our missions a little different and things and take an offering at the end of the month for that and things like that. And one of the guys said, can we, he raised his hand and he says, I've been saving some mission money. Can I give this for something towards this? And he gave $20, him and his wife. And people started giving They want, and um, $9,800 came. No. No, 7,800, and then an extra 2,000 came in. And his wife had called the night before and said, if you get a chance, if they ask, tell them we need a generator. And so that bought the generator. And the reason it's significant is the power goes out all the time in this place. This is the home of peace. But if it's dark, it's also dangerous. Darkness is danger because you don't know what's coming, who's coming over the walls, things like that. And it was one of those things that um, every time I heard that generator kick on, I thought, oh, Lord, you're so kind. I wasn't going to take an offering. And you had this one brother raise his hand and say, I got 20 bucks, and 20 bucks turns into that. And that's happening all over the world, little miracles like that. So his wife says, if they ask, ask about, tell them about the generator. Well, I didn't ask. And the Lord made sure his way got done anyways. Next slide. He really wanted us to know this little thing, the guy there. 
we have said things to him before when he builds schools and things. He's made them larger than the money that was given. And so, like, he's used wood trusses before that termites can get in. We've told him, you got to do quality because this stuff has got to last. So he took this picture, and this was a really big thing he wanted us to see. This was made in England. It's quality. So I took the picture just because I thought it was very funny to him. It's a very big deal. Next slide. This is the writing ministry that my wife and I run, um, and uh, we produce materials primarily right now for pastors, for helping them in what they do. You can go on here. Um, we've been, I was showing it earlier, one of the things we've been producing is how do you produce materials that help people in cultures where people don't read? So again, you think about somebody and think, what's the pressure a pastor in a country like this might face? Well, if you ask these pastors and you say, how many people in your congregation read? They'd say, 40%. How many people in your congregation read? 25%. 50%. And you say, wow, that's normal for them. So things like you're doing here, the, all your study programs, things like that, let's make half of you can't read. Now what happens? And let's make the pastor, the people who are teaching, give them a sixth grade education. Now what happens? How do you raise up people? And you say, and let's put them in the toughest environment on the planet to be a believer. That's what they got going for them. Now what happens? So um, that's just a pressure they're facing. So one of the things we've uh, worked on developing is material that teaches using pictures and then tells the Bible story. So something simple here would be one of the stories of God's word is at the beginning there's a serpent and he deceives mankind and he's running wild on the earth. But the good news is he is destroyed. And the reason that happens is because of Jesus Christ. And we, you would walk them through and give them scriptures that say this so that they could teach a group of illiterate people and tell them a story in a, in a way they can understand. Next, next slide. Uh, we were looking at this one earlier today. You know who this guy is? That's Moses. This guy right here, that is Peter. You can tell because of his brown hair. He, the message of the prophets and the apostles is the message of the cross. And it's the foundation we stand on. There isn't a different foundation. You think, okay, here I know you know that. What about in a country where what is proclaimed loudly over the loudspeakers all the time, every single day, is a very different message? How do you teach your people, no, this is the foundation we stand on, and that's the true foundation, and that one will last. The other one will fall. That's a pressure they face as they're hearing this on loudspeakers all the time. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a weighty thing. But trying to teach people whole biblical theology in a way that you could do it through pictures. So next, next slide. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. So um, the state... The state of Islam in Bangladesh is the government is not looking for 
Um, they would like to keep ISIS out. In fact, it's one of those things when, when a killing has happened, they've been very reluctant to say that it's related to ISIS. In the same way that, at least at different times in America, the, co the government's very reluctant to say something's terrorism, if you've noticed that before. So they're going to look for every opportunity to say it's something else other than that's a terrorist attack. So the government in Bangladesh would like to keep ISIS out. Um, that's, uh, it's really a hard thing to do. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you give them space to work? Um, it says in uh, Timothy, uh, pray that the gospel, that there would be peace and that the gospel would grow. Another place Paul says that the gospel would speed ahead and be honored. We need room for it to speed ahead. It's good. So, um, Philippines just had a picture. We had a pastor's conference there. This is something we typically do. These are pastors who are much more educated than um, you would find in Bangladesh. Still very needy. What we're doing there is we're um, doing the same, same things. We're also developing, if any of you ever saw this, this book of Mark, preacher's guides for them to help them understand, all right, what what is Mark saying in this part? I just finished one on the book of Revelation. And the reason I wrote it is because these churches are suffering like crazy. How do you help churches when they're suffering? Well, God's word has got to get in their hearts somehow. It's one of the ways we can help them. So next slide. So I just want to talk about specific about this one country, and it's not because this is the worst country on earth suffering-wise. All over the earth, believers are suffering. Syria is, um, I, I think the pressure in Syria right now is unbelievable. Iraq, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, Saudi Arabia, all huge chunks of Africa, big uh, Turkey, all sorts of things going on here. And then you have different parts of different areas where you'd say one chunk of Philippines, for instance, big chunks of Indonesia. There's whole parts of the world that you'd say that to be a believer there is super, super difficult. So this is just one country, um, but it tells you how we think. So um, this wouldn't be true of Anvesh, but for most of us, we'd say Bangladesh, it also wouldn't be true of you growing up in Singapore, but for most of us, we'd say Bangladesh is not very significant as a country. It's the eighth largest country in terms of population in the whole world. So just think about that. If you rank the countries and somebody said, hey, give the top 10, what would you put? What would rank as your one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? And you go, ah, that one wouldn't make it. I don't even think it'd make it in my 20. It wouldn't make it in my 30. You think, all right, we need to know the world as it is. Where are the people? How are they suffering? Next slide. It's, these are the last numbers that they had. 90% Muslim, 8% Hindu, less than 0.5% Christian. The Hindus are leaving, though. They're being heavily persecuted right now. They're going to India if they can. So um, the number of Muslims is growing substantially. And the 
hard thing is that's Islamic uh, extremism is growing substantially. So the pressure on any other religion other than Islam is really large. So it's not just Christians who are being beheaded and things like that. It's other faiths as well. Um, Hindus are more well off in Bangladesh and they are able to leave some of them. Um, that number is shrinking. Cr Christians are the bottom of society and they are not able to leave. And you start saying, okay, that number is increasing and uh, the other minority faiths are leaving. You got this people group who's saying, we can't leave, we'd do anything to leave. This is our country though, here's where we are. What are we gonna do? Again, this is not just this country. All right, next slide. Uh, it's the fourth largest Muslim population in the world. That number is changing. It's, it's moving, it's bumping, so you're gonna hear third sometimes. Indonesia, Pakistan, India. Pakistan will get passed here um, in this number as it goes forward. Next slide. We're working with a group called Free Christian Churches of Bangladesh. Um, again, 380 churches. Next slide. So last two years we've hosted a conference for um, the teachers and leaders in the church. This room you see, there's women on the other side mainly. Um, this is for the 380 churches. This is all their pastors and leaders. It's a stunning thought, isn't it? This means, so we have you guys. You are all trained higher than almost everybody sitting in that room. How many of you feel like you're ready to pastor a church? How many of you are ready to pastor five churches where half the people can't read? And none of this is meant to be like a guilt trip on us or anything. It's like a, it's just a reality thought of this is the real church in the real world. We got these people and they're doing it. They're not complaining about it. They're doing it. They're taking notes. So these things that I was showing these things, every single one of them, all these things, so that they can be teaching their people and giving scripture. So next, next slide. This guy right here and his wife, he is the pastor in this home of peace. So all the children and the workers and things like that, he's the pastor there. And uh, you look at him, him and his wife and they're looking and they're listening and uh, for us, we're, um, I got to know him last year just a little bit. What I didn't know this year, he didn't tell me, somebody else told me, was he'd been told by the police, uh, you have a um, death threat against you, you can't leave for two weeks. So while we're teaching, he and his wife are stuck in the 18 acres for two weeks because he's been told he'll be killed if he goes outside. So that sort of thought are things that none of us in this room are facing that. We don't know what that feels like to be that man, but he's not quitting. Notice what he's, what's he doing? He's taking notes. He's plugging away. He's doing it. Next slide. These three pastors, this is Pastor John right here. 
This is Pastor Roganat. This, um, this is Pastor Thomas. And uh, we sat down with them and we just recorded for them, um, recorded how is life for you. We would like to be able to tell churches in America what the situation is for believers in, in, in a heavily Islamic country currently. And so the guy on the left, um, he lives more in the south of Bangladesh, and uh, he has been threatened, all of them have been, but he, the police told him he needs to call them on his cell phone every two days to tell them that he's still alive. So those are those sorts of things you imagine, say, I can't imagine, that doesn't even register in my brain what it's like. Notice, he is uh, at a Bible conference, he looks like any one of us would look like at a Bible conference, doesn't he? He's there, he's studying God's word, and he's excited because God's fed his soul, and he's going to go back, and he's going to be ministering to his people. But the environment he's in is in an environment that he's checking in with the police every two days and telling them, um, I'm, yep, I'm still okay. And he's supposed to check in for his girls. He was telling us about people in the village next to him that uh, the a pastor there who worked with the Salvation Army, he had gone in town and extremists had broken into his house and they had machetes and the people in the village heard the screaming because the wife and the girls were in there and they came in so the um, attackers weren't able to kill anybody and the police came and the police say to the pastor, would you like to press charges? What's the right answer? The right answer is no. Why? Because if you press charges, you have just guaranteed your family's not going to make it. So the pastor says, no, I wouldn't like to press charges, and the men go free. And so again, um, this is just a reality of life for these guys where they're working. None of these men are hating life, but they're saying it's hard. The guy in the middle, um, he's the pastor of the Church of 600, and we said, can you tell us about your people? How many have left because of persecution? He said, none of them have left. All three of them said the same thing. Not one member has left. You think, wow, they're making it. The believers are making it. They're holding on to faith. And he said, actually, it's made our church stronger. And that shouldn't surprise us if we know church history and things. We say, of course, it has made it stronger. But we can't ignore it at the same time. And um, he's the one who we said, what's offering like for you? And he said, uh, offering is $3 a week. So, okay, somehow they've got to make it on that. Um, he, uh, he said that a, a Hindu was beheaded three kilometers from his house. I don't know how many of you think in kilometers. That's not very far. A, five, a 5K is 3.1 miles less than three miles from his house. They tried to behead a Christian one kilometer from his house and the guy didn't die. So, so we asked him, have you thought about quitting? And he said, no, this is it's what I do. What would the people do if I quit? Next slide. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the guy on the right, he was told in July, if you keep preaching, we'll kill you. So he said, so what have you done? And he said, well, I'm still preaching. And um, it's easy to say, yeah, I would do the same thing. I would, that's what I would do too. 
But remember, I'm the guy who got there a year ago, steps off the plane and says, can I get back on the plane? I'd like to go home right now. So this is a reality our brothers and sisters are facing that um, they've been told they can't baptize in his area. And we said, so what's happening right now? And he said, we can't baptize. None of us can baptize right now. So they're waiting to baptize believers until they feel like it's safe enough to do it. That's a pressure we don't know as churches, that pressure. Next slide. This is something, this is a picture actually, this is from CNN um, less than a month ago. This is called the Feast of Eid. And it's one of the um, biggest uh, festivals in Islam. There's a cow being lowered for sacrifice. Um, not putting this here to say anything about um, about Pakistan. What I want to talk about is if you were a believer, what would it feel like? So this is a major city here. Um, next slide is Dhaka. This was CNN. Um, notice that Dhaka is the capital city. Dhaka, Bangladesh, rivers of blood run through Dhaka after animal sacrifices. The <coughs> city is a city of 16 to 20 million. The sewer system is terrible. Heavy rains happen. Every family is sacrificing here. Every Islamic family, they're celebrating when Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. That's the way they tell the story. Um, and uh, so every family is sacrificing. Cows are being gathered from all over the nation. Can you imagine, though, if you're a believer living in this nation? Do the next slide. That's the Dhaka streets right there. Can you imagine you are going to work? And so you see people walking and riding bikes, and that is what you are living in. This is what your brothers and sisters are living in. Pressures that we don't know. We don't feel them, but we have to feel them. We have to know this. We have to pity pity the people and say, oh God, would you save those people and would you help our brothers and sisters? This is a pressure I don't know. How can we help? What can we do? So this picture, doesn't it seem like that's the sort of thing the book of Revelation describes? This is, it's, um, this is the sort of thing they're facing. So the family that, that runs the denomination we work with, she said, I can't leave the house this whole sacrifice period because I just can't stand it. And that was before this happened. That was just seeing sacrifice happen, every family and the blood flowing into the street. Next slide. You see, just that. You're a believer living there, right there. Next slide. These guys, I am just showing that picture because I see them with their lights and I think, God, I'm so glad they're there. This nation needs people like that. And they're not afraid. They're doing the job. God is giving them grace. But all over the world, so not just there, we have believers all over the world that we have to say, we have got to engage as believers. And if we say, wow, it's too risky, think, we're not, we're not the ones living there. We're not living there. They're not quitting. They're doing it. They could very easily save their lives right now. All they have to say is, Muhammad is Allah's prophet, and there would be no more problems. 
Like, what would I do? You know, when it talks in Revelation about uh, no one is permitted to buy and sell unless they take the mark of the beast, that idea of somebody saying to you, life would be super easy for you in the city, all you have to do is this. And you go, you're right, it would be super easy. And we hear that and we read it, they're living that pressure though. All we'd have to do is say, yeah, we agree with you, and they can buy, they can sell, no more pressure, life is okay. But they're saying, no, there's something greater, and we're going to fight for something bigger than that. Next picture. There's him, there's him with his notes. He's going back to teach his people. So I love the fact that they take the word of God seriously, and they're going to be proclaiming it. Next picture. Another gal, she's going to do the same thing. If you are a believer there, you are fully engaged. Next slide. This is the, the preacher's guide to the book of Mark. This is the one translated into their language. The guy I travel with is on the right. His name is Bob. And he is telling them this. At this moment when I took this picture, he said, do you realize what it costs for you to be a believer in this country? Are you willing to do this? And Bob is not saying that from a perspective like, yeah, we're, we know what it's like. He's saying, do you know the cost? Are you willing to do it? And they're raising their hand. They're saying, yes, we are willing to do it. He says, you have God's word. Are you willing to bring this to the people in this nation? They're saying, yes, we are. So this is their Bible school. This is a 10-month Bible school. It meets... Uh, in the city of Dhaka, and there were about 20 people here, but their number of students they had this year was 15. It is like <clears throat> Elijah's cloud. Do you remember that story? Waiting for a thunderous rain, something that will parch the famine in the land. He said, do you see anything? And the servant goes, I see a little cloud coming out. It's just the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, get ready and you better go, Ahab. You better ride because a storm's coming. That idea of you look at these and you say, what can so few do among so many? It reminds you of a New Testament story, doesn't it? Feed, feed the 5,000. They say, who could do that? He says, what do you got? Well, we got five loaves and a couple fish. But what can so little do among so many? What can so little do that are so uneducated, so poor, what can they do against something so powerful? This is where our faith is tested. Because the answer that you think is they can't do anything. That's not true though, is it? In the background, see the guy in the middle? His name's Matthew. His, he called him his grand-grandfather was a... I guess you'd call him a king in India. And he owned over a hundred elephants and um, for a hundred, what was the other animal, donkeys? And he started, he was a Muslim man and he started meeting with a Catholic priest and the priest said to him, let's compare our holy books. So this is however long ago, his grand-grandfather met the Lord and they tore down his palace and they made the first church in his area. 
think, how did that happen? It happened through a Catholic priest saying, let's study our books together. And so his family, this guy's translating all these years later because of something that happened, uh, light that happened in this place. And the people in the village said to him, why are you abandoning us? We will give you another village. So think about that. It reminds you of Jesus' temptation, doesn't it? Satan saying, I'll give you all the kingdom of the earth. All you have to do is bow down. His grand-grandfather's hearing, I'll, we'll, we'll give you another village. Just don't do this. And he gets rid of it all. And the palace turns into a church. And it gives me great hope of, Lord, you're doing this all over the earth. And you will do it until the end. But you need a people who have enough faith in you and courage, and they're not lazy, who say, all right, I'll engage. I'll get busy, and I'll do my part. And I'll help as much as I can. So next slide. Um, I wrote a children's book. They are. This is the guy who heads up the denomination, and they are uh, bringing this to, we printed it, so it's going to all the, all the churches there. And so we're just kind of celebrating that thought. Next slide. There's the Bible school students. Look at them. They're your age. That's you guys. You happen to be here. So again, make me lots of years younger. I'm watching those guys. They're studying hard. They've left their families for 10 months. The whole family's suffering because they're studying hard. And I am wasting my life doing nothing. All the while saying, I am doing what the Lord wants me to do. How could I look these guys in the eye and say we have the same faith? If they heard me say, hey, guys, I just want you to know I got a chance for an education, but I never go to class. What would they say to me? What would they think? So that thought of these guys are risking their lives because there's a king sitting on a throne who's really alive. He's not dead. And he said the whole world is his. And they believe this one nation that none of us would ever, never want to live in, they think this nation is worth it. And the people are worth it. And it's not just this nation. It's all over the earth. So thoughts of, I want to go to India someday. And good for you. None of us would want to live there. And I'm not picking on your country. It's way easier here. It's way easier here. Why would anyone do it? Because our king is worth it and people are worth it. And these are our brothers and sisters. And these young guys right here are doing the best they can with what they got. And what I'd hope I'd be able to say to them someday is, boy, best I could, I helped you guys do what I could. Not just that nation, though. You're going to bump into stuff all over, different places, doors the Lord opens. What you'd like is I engaged as best as I could, as hard as I could in it. I wasn't lazy in it. Yeah. It's about 130 pastors. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, well, so the, the home of peace, this orphanage thing they have, which is not really an orphanage, but so they're getting about 10% of the students <coughs> are becoming leaders in the church. So similar to your vision as a church here of raising up leaders, they're going for that. So they're getting a lot of young people just like this. Those guys are in their 20s right there. So younger people, um, none of them will leave the country. None of them will ever be able to get a visa. Um, you need money uh, in a bank account to leave because the, gov the government wants to know you'll come back to get your money. There's something holding you to the country. They'll never be able to get a visa. So, the, so in essence, the church is saying we can't send our leaders somewhere else to get trained. We got to do it ourselves. And you say, yeah, you do. Um, and it's, it's not a character flaw in anybody. We would leave too. If we got the chance, we would leave. So these guys are being trained in their country and they're sticking, sticking it out and they're not complaining. But it's, they're raising up younger people It would look a lot like you. But just imagine, again, you're going to have five churches that you're working with. Next slide. There's just some uh, example of the materials they have. I developed these preacher's guide because this Bible they have is about that thick. There's no cross-references in it, no study notes. Their Bible. And just imagine you're trying to find out where Jesus quoted from, and you have a sixth grade education, and your Bible has no study notes in it, no cross-references. You can't say, oh, it's Jeremiah, whatever. So that's where we developed that material from. Next slide. That's an example in English, if you've ever seen it. Study notes, we need to sit down with the people and explain to them how it works. So we'll say, here's a verse. See the note. This is connected to it. Down to number 266, it'd be down here somewhere. We'll have to explain it like five times. And then finally, when they get it, it is so sweet because they're like, oh. And we'll have them preach sermons and things, and it's so sweet but they've never had resources. So it's like you, if a carpenter hands you a tool that you've never seen before and says, here you go, and you're turning it around and looking saying, I have no idea what to do with this thing. I can't put it on a map anywhere. Next slide. The men, when they graduate, will get bikes. That's their graduation gift from the denomination. The bikes are because they're pastoring in more than one church. And so they're going to be going from village to village. And next slide. <clears throat> and the women will be receiving sewing machines. And it's so that they can have some livelihood. Next slide. I love this picture. That's We've finished our Bible conference with uh, the people in the denomination. Those two guys are going home. And outside, the, if they took a right, there's a long driveway, there's a wall. And then you're going to find streets and buses going crazy and mobs of people and they're just gone. And what I love is that all over the world there's believers doing just that. God's word is burning in their heart and they're going out to do it. That's the glory of the church. These guys are walking into the most dangerous environment and they're not complaining, they're going for it. And you have brothers and sisters all over the world doing it 
at the very least, you have to say, we're going to work as hard here as we'd like them to work there. We're going to be as bold here as we'd like them to be bold there. My testimony that you start saying, wow, laziness is a terrible thing. You say, yeah, you're the only one who has a light and you refuse to show it to anybody. That's a terrible thing. So that is part of what the Lord is doing. Um, and I'd be happy. I don't know what time you guys end. I imagine I talked longer than you guys normally go. I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions. What's, what's that? But, um, but again, this is not just about one country. I hope it just tells you this is about countries. It's about our world, what the world is like right now. And what would I feel like if I'm a believer? I hope this gives you prayers, sympathy in your heart, compassion for people. So comments, questions, thoughts? Right. So, um, and you can start, you, this is again, this is all over the world right now, but there are certain things uh, dress-wise or hair color-wise so that you start seeing this person takes their faith seriously at a different level than the average people here. And so, for instance, the men all start dyeing their beards and their hair red and you go, all right, these are guys who are taking what happens at the mosques very seriously. And uh, they are very anti-Christian. And um, they are very anti-American. And uh, they are going to do whatever they can to eliminate Christianity from their country. And you might go, well, that's not fair. That's categorizing a people and say that's what they're feeling here. So you walk off the plane... And um, somebody's going to look at you, and you get your passport, but they're looking at you, and they're just staring at you. And the idea is, what are you doing here? And so a guy, you know, there's a, a guy looks at you, and he just goes, Muslim? And it's an interesting thing, you know. He knows very well I'm not Muslim there, but he's just staring, and he's got my passport, and you can feel just hatred. And it's like from the moment you're leaving, you're thinking like, oh, Lord, these people live in this all the time. And that's that moment last year where I just wanted to go home. I got a wife. I got a son at home. I didn't sign up for this. So play that out a little bit and think about that and think they didn't sign up for this either. But in another sense, we did sign up for this, didn't we? Isn't that what Jesus said? Anyone who comes to me must take up his cross. And if we don't go, think, well, who will? Who is going to help these guys? I already said they can't, they can't leave. And it's not wise to say, hey, we'll start a big migration program and bring them all here. Because the fact is, if it was people like me and you were bringing me here, I'm not going home. And so I think, all right, the best thing we can do as churches is say, how can we help them? We can't do their job for them. We've got to let the church in Bangladesh be the church and reach their people. But you'd say, give them as much strength as you can have. They know somebody's on their side. And that, we've heard it over and over again, this thought, 
You go, what can I bring? I'm nothing. And people will say, just you coming was enough. Anybody here been in the hospital? And somebody, you've been lying in the bed, and somebody came and stood next to you, and they said nothing significant, and they were there for a half hour, and they left, and you just felt like you had courage and strength to make it. That's what it is. You're not bringing anything more than somebody knows you and loves you and cares for you. Jesus' command, those who are in prison, visit them. And you say, ah, that's it. Iran is a prison right now. Iraq is a prison. Afghanistan's a prison. Pakistan's a prison. What are the believers in the free part of the world going to do? Uh, but that pressure, you walk out of the airport and you're going to find red-bearded people all over the place and they're staring at you. And the people who greet you say, um, so what we would do, you meet somebody, I've just met you once, and say, I'm going to give them a hug. And they go, I'll just get in the car. And you go, okay, that's their environment right now. They don't even want to hug because they know that's going to put a spotlight on you. Not going to stop at any restaurants. You're going to go to their place and stay in their place while you're there. So that sort of feeling, you're feeling something there like, I'm not wanted here. And the moment you start feeling like, wow, that's really bad for me, you realize it's a hundred thousand times worse for them and they live with it all the time and I get to go home in two weeks. And they, they're going to live in this. So that's that feeling. Every one of them. Um, you might have one or two who's like a denominational overseer person but so add that to the pressure of they're all going to have to, they're all going to have to work. Yeah. So the so the students who came into the school, their family is losing a worker. They're all day workers. A day worker is someone who who the money you earn working in the field during the day in the rice fields or whatever, you're spending on food when you come home and you're eating it that night and the next morning. So you're, you're never getting ahead. So if you say to somebody, hey, why don't you save for education? You'd say they have, there is zero chance of doing it. And so um, these people, for somebody to go to Bible school, the entire family has to sacrifice and say, we will do without one worker for the next 10 months while you go to Bible school. Again, that's a pressure. So those of you who are at, I know we got uh, people from Wright State and Cedarville right here, and maybe you have a family that's sacrificing, but it's not impacting, I would pretty much guarantee, what your family eats every night and how hard they work, things like that. So it's something that, for us, that doesn't, that doesn't even compute. They hadn't, um, we, we went, uh, when we left the conference last year, one of the pastors was on the way as we were driving and we stopped at his house. I have a picture on my um, iPad. And they hadn't eaten in three days. He was being teased by some of the other pastors because he, he hadn't been shaving. And so that's not like a cool look for them to be unshaven, something like that. And he said, I, I've been, we haven't been eating so I can't, sh I can't afford shaving. So we get to their house and um, we bought, on the way, tea and Oreos or something like 
Oreos, they call them Dorios. It's a Oreo with a D. And, and, um, and they're there, and so you're there, and they have to offer you something because they have to be hospitable. It's their culture, but they have nothing to offer. So again, you feel that, wow, you got to entertain somebody, and you have nothing to entertain. That feeling they must have. So we brought something, and we have tea and a cookie with them, but you're kind of thinking all the while, oh, man, I, I shouldn't even be eating or drinking anything. So we leave it. But what was so weird was they had a TV, an old black and white TV playing, and it was playing the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. So you got the richest people on the planet in the background playing tennis and the poorest people on the planet not eating. And I'm sitting there, and I am more closely identified with the TV people than the people living in that home. That's my reality more. I'm like the TV people. And say, how can I, Lord, how can, how can I give my life for something other than that, though, for these people here? So we left the tea and we left the Dorios. Um, and we left a little bit of money, but that's just, that's their living reality of what they're facing. Okay, so um, pastors, leaders, things that you imagine, what, what, what would a pastor face in another country? Two pastors, so a couple years ago, we said, can you tell us about what's your biggest struggle as a church? And you're imagining different things. And two different pastors said our biggest struggle is we have nowhere to bury our dead. You think, because the dead Christians defile the ground. So again, this is not just one country. It's a whole chunk of the earth that, that believers are wrestling with things. We'd say, I don't know that pressure. I don't feel that pressure. It should cause us to pray of, Lord, how do you solve that? So we say, what do you do? say, well, we have to sneak off into the jungle at night and bury them. Somebody dies, we have to figure out how to bury them, but it's illegal. You say, our churches will never, we will never know that. So that's something that they face. What was the second thing you asked? Oh, so when I talked about the faith of this group of churches, and there's other groups of churches in Bangladesh who are also going for it and doing, and it just gives you really great courage. And okay, Lord, you're doing it in this country. People are meeting the Lord, but um, one of the ways this church is growing, you're so you're doing campus outreaches, right? Where are you doing them right now? Wright State, Cedarville. What's the next plan after that? Where you, where where else would you like to go? Huh, it's a pretty aggressive plan. So this group of churches, they're going to villages and they are building schools. They're getting money mostly from the states. So uh, that organization that the guy I travel with, they're called Vessels of Mercy. Um, they have been uh, giving money towards schools. A school costs $5,000 to build a brick building and uh, that includes land in a village. The hard thing is people in the village, particularly the marginalized people in a village, so now it would be Hindus in the village, 
uh, they are not really welcome and treated well in the Muslim majority schools. So even though the kids are required to go to school, they'll probably be in a language that's not their first language. This church is building schools where they're taught all week in their first language by a teacher who's a believer, husband and wife team, and it becomes a church on weekends. Doesn't it sound like you guys? Isn't that crazy? It's that, that thought of how do we do it. These churches, are our schools are becoming churches. And you say, wow, you're getting 200 Hindu children in and you're telling them about Jesus. And their parents are coming on weekends and they're loving it. It's, 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 it's amazing. So that was that thought, though, when um, money had been given and Bob, I wasn't on this trip, but Bob was looking at the rafters and he said, Albert, all the rafters are wood. They're already all eaten through by termites. And he said, Bob, do you know how many kids are coming here? We had to build it bigger. So it, that led to the UK thing on the generator, saying you cannot have any more wood rafters in your buildings. You have to use steel. So his struggle is we, we got to fit more kids in. And Bob's thought is, we don't want your buildings to collapse in five years. So, but again, this church, rather than shrinking back in lack of faith, they're doing something that should be very near and dear to your hearts because you're doing the very same thing. So, Catherine, you, you had your hand up. Right, it's a really good question. Um, we we uh, really, white people, white people attract a lot of attention. Um, so, you could travel anywhere you want to. And I'm not, I'm not joking, I'm saying, it is awesome to see people that you'd say you would have an open door anywhere you wanted to go. You would have an open door. You would have an open door. That sort of thought of, we were there for two weeks, and until we got to the airport on the way home, I did not see one white person other than the guy I was traveling with. City of millions of people, traveling in an airplane, going to the north of the country, traveling through cities, getting there. One reason is this, nobody wants to go there. We're in Thailand, so Bangkok, and you're, you're with the, you know, you're talking to the people and they say, where are you flying to? And say, we're flying to Dhaka. And this is the border control person saying, Dhaka, why would anyone go there? That's, that's the thought. And so, uh, would I bring my wife? I would not bring my wife right now. Um, it's, it's a spot you'd say, um, uh, it's not a place for a large short-term mission trip thing, but for people who go, okay, a couple people going in to do something very deliberate, and they're not out visiting lots of stuff, can make a major difference in a short amount of time, but other people could travel and it would be sweet.
So cur currently that's the climate though, and that's not just there, it's all over. And none of that says um, it's because white people are better than or anything, it's how people are perceived in different places. It, it does tell you though, okay, we gotta figure out ways that we're gonna get the gospel all over the place, you know. But I, I would love my wife to go to the home of peace and it would be really encouraging to marry the, the wife of Albert who runs the denomination. Um, but at least currently, I, w I would not want to bring her. Any other questions? Yeah. We have translators the whole time. Yep. And the people there, unlike lots of the... So, for instance, Singapore, people's English is phenomenal, fantastic. India, you're going to find, uh, I would imagine, huge swaths of India, English is very spoken. The problem is Bangladesh is so underdeveloped. Uh, languages that would be for business sort of things, like English, there's no people coming in, so the people aren't learning English. So it's, it's, uh, it's not like parts of the world where you go, wow, everybody's learning English, and you think, why, why would you if you lived in a village? You're never going to know somebody from another country. So we have translators with us, um, and they're translating the materials also. Yep, yep. And they will do the schools in the tribal language, which is their first language, their heart language. So the parents would relish the opportunity yeah. if their kids would go to a school where they're going to be taught in Bengali, right? No, where, where they'll be taught in their heart language. And so it's like the kids have to go to the government-sponsored school in the morning. They get to go to one in a language they actually understand in the afternoon. That's the idea. And so the kids, where are they learning? You'd say they're learning in the afternoon. And the, the people who are already oppressed and by the majority, they're hungering for this. And they're saying, this, we have a place where we're loved and accepted. Um, also putting freshwater wells in. A freshwater well costs $300 to get clean water. And uh, where the Muslims won't let, for instance, a Christian, a Hindu, use the well in the village, the Christians are putting in wells and the whole village gets to use it. It sends a statement to everybody and you can think, wow, that actually sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? So... They will, yeah, so there'll be a school and there will be a wall around it. And any of you who've lived in a foreign country, not every foreign country, but where the wall has like glass shards on the top of it or nails or spikes or something like that to keep people from coming in, that's what the walls would look like. Um, I, we were talking earlier about some of these pictures in our curriculum that we're doing that uh, teaching that, for instance, this is an image of Adam and Eve. They are not welcome in the garden anymore, a story. But by the end of the story, the gates of heaven are wide open. You can say, okay, yeah, the, the veil was torn, things like that. But imagine a place where 
you've never left anything unlocked ever in your whole life because it would be stolen because there's always someone who wants to take your stuff. And imagine that. One of the students raised their hand once. We were talking about the Lord's Supper and said that it's a mini feast. It's, and one of the students raised their hand, and this is another one of those things that you think, I could think a thousand years and I would never have said that. And he said, will there be enough food in heaven? And that, that for me, you imagine whole chunks of Africa might ask that same question. But I, I, I would never ask that question. I've, I've never known that feeling. But for them, they're rejoicing that there's enough food in heaven. It, it totally redefines your expectation of what's normal, like what should give us joy? It should give us joy that there's enough food in heaven, that the gates are wide open, nothing bad can come in for a people who've never known that. That sort of thought. It's good for our soul to go because it reshapes our Christianity more accurately, probably. Anybody else? Yeah. This town is probably, if you took a train, it would be an all-day train ride. Um, uh, it would be like an eight-hour car ride, uh, about a 45-minute plane ride, something like that. Hard to know for me how far because the roads can be so bad. Just tell you how they value life here. The trains, you, can, you buy a ticket, but, or if you don't buy a ticket, hundreds of people ride on the top of the trains. You've probably seen that before, haven't you? You've <laughs> so think, think about this, though. We have laws saying you have to buckle up, you're going to get a ticket, whatever. Selling seats to people, and they're living, I mean, they're, they're just riding babies and everybody on top of the trains, People are dying all the time. It tells you human life is not valued the same. You say, wow, but it is by the believers. So this is just a realities of a part of the world. <coughs> Anybody else? Is there a reason why you chose this town? That's a super question. Is there a reason why I chose this town? I would say it's a, a faith reason for myself. Um, this is an analogy we use in our church. It's not a great analogy, and it breaks down after a little bit, but the analogy is this. Uh, you know when you have a sweater and a string is sticking out of it and you pull on it to see what happens? Where it breaks down is this. Eventually you're going to wreck the sweater. So that's the bad part of the analogy. The thought is this, though. You see God doing something. You say, I'm going to pull on that string. So if you talk to people in our church long enough, they'll say something like that. Like, you have your own culture thing. I've been experiencing it here. You talk to people in our church and they'd say, I pulled on that string. And the thought is, God was up to something and I wanted to see what would happen. A door was open and there was a string and we started pulling on it. And the door stayed open and we kept pulling on it and we're still pulling on it. And you think, huh, Lord. So the thought is, keep pulling until... You're not pulling it anymore. That's why. And I love it because in our life, the Lord has all sorts of things like that. A little string opens up and you go, huh, what are you up to here, Lord? I'm going to tug on this a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. We've all experienced that. Like, I thought this was going to go somewhere. Other times, you, 
the doors keep opening and you keep walking through them further and further. And so if anybody would say to me, wow, your big life grand vision was this, I'd say, no, my big life grand vision was nothing. Do you remember that, my early testimony? The Lord, thankfully, had another, other plans. But I think that thought, I think um, Christians are, to use a different analogy, we are often very stuck. We act like we're at a red light and we're waiting for God to turn the light green. I think that's very backwards. The better analogy is you live with a green light and you're waiting for God to turn it red. So what it means is, huh, the Lord's opened the door at right state. Hmm, we got a red light, or I mean a green light. Let's run as long as we got a green light. Do you remember Paul? He finally got to a town and the door, Lord didn't open a door in that town. But he doesn't quit. What's he do? He, I'm going to the next town. And I don't think it's, bec it's like a long panicked, we got to have 8,000 prayer meetings. To, he's like, I know I got a green light from the Lord to evangelize. That town's not open. I still know the plan. I'm going to this town. Then I'm, and then find, the Lord dangles that string of come over to Macedonia. He goes, all right, I'm pulling on that string. But even Macedonia, you'd say, he didn't know where to go in Macedonia, so where do you go? I don't know, start somewhere. That's the idea. Start, do something, and the Lord will meet you there. That's what he's up to. It's called faith. I, so that's why there. And what I'm loving is I think there's going to be lots more strings, and you just start yanking on them and see what happens. John. <coughs> Free Christian Churches of Bangladesh. That's a good question. Um, I think sometimes you hear from believers things like uh, they will say a statement. We were talking about this earlier today. Like the believers in South Korea, they've got it figured out, blah, blah, blah. And like the church there is perfect. And um, my response to that is the only reason you'd say it is because you've never been to South Korea and lived there. Um, people are people wherever you go. So believers are believers. They have flaws. They have to work through their flaws. So th is there any competition between the churches in America? You go, yeah. Is there probably in Bangladesh? Yep. They got to figure it out and they got to do it the same way. So we've had some of these same conversations with them of, for instance, the translated books. We'd like some of these to go to the assembly of God. And then have a conversation. Brother, blah, blah. And so some of those same things of things that we wrestle with, they're going to wrestle with very same soul sort of things, you know. So uh, do they cooperate? Probably not as much as they should. Do we cooperate? Probably not as much as we should. And that's one of the prayers. All right, Lord, help the churches work together. But I think one thing about... Um, uh, being able to travel a little bit as you do see, okay, the church is way healthier than I thought, but it's not like there's a version in a part of the world that's way better than another ver. The church, 
the church, this church is a healthy church. This is a great church. I love what God is doing here. You shouldn't think, well, the church in China is better because they're whatever. It's you've got to be faithful where you're at. But you're going to struggle with your souls here. And they're going to struggle with their souls there. Pastoral care is needed everywhere. Soul care, laziness is everywhere. People like me are everywhere. Mm. Yeah. That is a really, really great question. One thing we found um, is that the Old Testament is largely neglected. Um, and so uh, I would say, <clears throat> and not neglected because they don't love God's word, neglected because they have Bibles that are this thick with no cross-references. So however hard it is for me to read Leviticus, make it 80 times harder you know, that's way more. It, but I would say they have an excuse, and we have zero. Um, but I would say something we've noticed is heaven is sweet to them in a way that it probably isn't sweet to us. That, that when your life is pressed that hard, the hope of heaven is, is that much sweeter, you know. But we would bring up, we'll bring up stories from the Old Testament that you would expect somebody to know, and they won't, they won't oftentimes know that story. And again, it's not because they're not trying, it's because that's the best, it's, they're doing the best they can. On me personally or on who? Like going? Um, when I was a kid, I played hockey. And uh, I, <clears throat> I um, played pond hockey, and I was way better than my sisters. And I was way better than the farm kids who lived down the road. Okay. <laughs> One day, my friend, who played for area team, skated across. It was on the lake uh, where we are, and he skated across the lake. He goes, can I play with you guys? And in my mind, as I'm playing hockey, as I'm dominating my sisters and the farm kids, um, I'm thinking of the Montreal Canadiens. I'm going to play for them someday and all this stuff. 
And then the kid comes over and he says, hey, can I play with you guys? And he's like eight times faster than me. And in one second, I realized, oh, I don't think I'm playing for the Montreal Canadiens. I am, I am something that is way beneath the standard. And one thing that's good for your soul, I think, is to be with people that you realize in this area, I thought the standard was here. And I realized the standard is here. And Lord, what am I? To start questioning myself, like last year, questioning my own weakness, like, Lord, why is it I can be here one minute and I want to leave? Yet, yet I'm thinking, why do other people leave their countries? They should stay and work for the church. And that, so one thing it does for your soul is you start examining yourself in a new way and say, what am I? Am I what I say I am? Am I as mature as I think I am? Does my kind of faith work when it's pressed? And sometimes what you find is, no, my kind of faith doesn't work. Like, does my kind of hockey work when I encountered a real player? And you go, no, that kind of hockey doesn't work with him. Oh, I had to reevaluate. Um, and that's just hockey. It didn't matter. But you go, your faith matters. So encountering something seeing these believers who those guys going out into a very hard world and they're not ducking pressure at all. They're going, all right, we're going to do this thing. When times when I've had a conversation with somebody and it's the dumbest conversation and somebody says, boy, what, whatever, and it's, it's an open invite for faith, that sort of thing. How many of you have had that and you've ducked it? All of us, Right? And you think, what kind of stuff am I made of? Those sorts of things. And go, my faith, all right, the standard is here. Those areas where I'm here, traveling or, or participating brings it up here. I'm expecting them to give their whole lives and sacrifice, but I'm not willing to give anything mission-wise or those sorts of things, you know. So it's good. It forms your own soul, but you also see the body of Christ in a new way. It's far bigger. I think this is really sweet. Um, it's sweet seeing cultures come together here. It's more representative of what the body of Christ actually is, truly. So one thing that's good for us is see, wow, the body of Christ is really actually really big and it's really healthy and it's doing it. It makes me love my Lord more. He's that, that guy with the, um, his grand-grandfather who had the elephants and he's persuaded by the word of God and he tears down his palace and builds a church. Lord, you're doing that all over the world. You're greater than I think you are sometimes. I don't want to throw up my hands and quit. Ah, Islam's going to win. Islam isn't going to win. I already know that. So I've got to stay engaged. And there will be another version after Islam. America has its own kind of that. We just don't feel it the same. The sexual pressure we face right now is stunning. And churches all over are ducking that pressure and caving into that. And we're just like them being forced to sign on the dotted line, do you agree with this? And, um, and the, we feel it in a different way. We're not going to get our head chopped off, but we are going to lose any standing we have in society. And you have to decide, is it worth it? How much do I value that? So it's good for your soul. It causes you to question all sorts of stuff. How much do I trust you, Lord? 
um, that sort of thing. It makes you love the body of Christ more. It makes you also more adaptable to, you guys already are because you've got cultures working together, but you love other practices and you're able to incorporate them. So, yes. You like that part, don't you? You should like that part. It. The, the translator is somebody who did learn English. And, yep, they, the best one would be somebody who speaks their language really well and who also speaks English well. And there is a huge need for people who can do that. It's, it's a great gift. It's, it's a huge gift to a people. So... Um, people who are willing to take the time to learn a language, the really hard work, it's a gift to the body of Christ. It's a gift to whole peoples to be able to make a bridge because otherwise there's no bridge. You know, um, <clears throat> and there's harder languages. This is not the hardest language in the world, but there's harder languages that people are like, ah, it's not worth it. It's going to take me two years to learn the language even moderately. And so you say, somebody's got to learn it. Yeah, Rick. That's a really good question. It correct. So that's a good question. India, it's a very large. Do you speak any Bengali? So in India, for that would be an awesome place to go learn. And one good thing about going to India is culturally, it's so close at least places. They're more; they would be far more likely to go back go back than if they went to Singapore, for instance, or someplace like like that. Um, but the, the people who will do the hard work for language work, it really is a gift, and it's worth it doing that sort of stuff. But you're, you're right, where are they going to learn it? I don't know, but I'm sure thankful some people have. <laughs>